Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. Well, this morning we are in our fourth week of our series called The Good Fight. And I'm not going to cover everything that we've talked about over these uh, the three previous weeks, but this week the message is called Kings and Queens. And the reason why it is entitled that is because kings and queens are people of influence. Isn't that right, church? They're people of influence. And you think to yourself, well, I'm not a king and I'm not a queen. Um, No, you may not be, but you are a person of influence. God has put you uniquely, whether you're a parent, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a grandmother, whether you're a person who's a leader in business, God has put you in a place of influence over somebody or something. And the very truths that are going to be mentioned here this morning are going to be truths that you need to not only live out in your life, but you need to let, let your life shine, your light shine, and your life be of about two different things, righteousness and justice. The basis of leadership that we know of and and the effectiveness of leadership kind of goes down to these two things. How well people administer justice and how well we maintain righteousness. If you look back at all the past presidents, they are going to be the gauge of their effectiveness, effectiveness, easy for me to say, is based off those two things. How well they administered justice and how well they maintained righteousness amongst their people. It would be the same thing with with your boss. It'd be the same thing with your boss, and it's the same thing in your home. To kind of set this up, this idea of justice, I want to tell um, just kind of two stories about the, the difference of my children and the reason why that I know that justice is, is a problem for you, just like it's been a problem for me. With my children, my kids are vastly different. Does anyone have, like, multiple children, and they're vastly different? Great. Then I'm speaking to you. All right, my kids are vastly different. When Austin was younger, Austin was one of those kids who would pretty much keep to himself and he wouldn't, want, he wouldn't cause trouble. And anytime something would happen to him, I would go to bat for him and, and I would not even think for a second that he has done anything wrong because he's so quiet and he was meek and he was mild as a child. And everybody, is, anytime he got into a scuffle or got into a conflict, automatically it was somebody else's fault. I didn't even want to believe that it was his fault. So I, in that moment, thought that I just said, you know what, I don't think that justice is right for him because I just know him and he wouldn't do anything wrong, right? So there's, there's one side of it where we say that we don't want justice. It'd be the same thing with you and say if you got a speeding or if you got pulled over for speeding, right? And you're driving down the interstate and you're flying, you're going 70 in a, in a 65, 75, 80, some of your lead feet, maybe 85 when you're pushing it to get to Macon to go shopping, something like that. And you get pulled over and you pull the car over and you're thinking to yourself, I just don't want a ticket. I just don't want a ticket. I just don't want a ticket. Who's ever thought that? You don't want justice. You do not want justice. However, I'll tell you the other, the other side of that. With Gracie, when she grew up, she was the child who picked on everybody else. I didn't want justice for her, and I would go to bat for her and say, you know, I would make excuses for her, and I would say, you know what, Gracie, oh, I, I know, yeah, she's going to be a little bit honored, but I'm sure she was provoked. No, she wasn't provoked. She was rotten. <laughs> That's what it was. But I did not want justice for her. I would, I would go to bat for her and I would say, I would cry out and I would say, surely it's not her fault. Surely it was somebody else's fault. And yet, 
it was her fault. It'd be the same thing. For instance, it's the same thing for me yesterday. I'm just kind of looking out. Actually, I think Marla and I were outside yesterday. And we were, we were on the other side of the spectrum. We're outside and, are, and under the, the carport, and we're kind of looking out, and there's a four-way stop right in front of our house. Ironically enough, it's only a four-way stop for people who live in the neighborhood, but for everybody else, it's an interstate, and they don't stop. So we're sitting out under the carport, and automatically I see this car doesn't even just bump the brakes and flies on through. And I am crying out for what? I'm crying out for justice. Where are the police when times like this? And we're crying out, please, this person needs a ticket. You need to take their license away, impound their car, do whatever you have to do. I just want to protect my neighborhood. I want it to be quiet. See, there's the other side of it. We say, please, Lord, don't give me justice. And we, we, we cry for our version of righteousness, but then on the other side of it, we're like, please give me justice to make things right. Does that make sense? It's, it's amazing how that works. This idea of righteousness, there are going to be three things that are on the screen. Before we kind of get into our text this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 9, verse 1. And in just a few moments, actually before we actually get to 2 Samuel, we're going to start out in Romans 3. So if you're an overachiever, you can open up to both of those things. If you didn't bring your Bible this morning, we have them under the chairs as they are always under the chairs. But talking about these, these three levels of righteousness every person has been given this idea of a moral righteousness or a common righteousness now a common moral righteousness this is just your morality we're all every human was made in the image of god and these this is some of the attributes that every person has the challenge that we have though with this is though there are a couple challenges one of them is our morality is altogether different. Something that's a really big deal to you is not a big deal to me. And yet there are things that you say, wow, that's a really big deal, and to me it may be a big deal, but there's this difference of this, this morality. But we all have some sense of morality, no, what, no matter what, what age you've lived in, no matter what country you've lived in, or whatever the case may be. I'll give an example of this. Um, about two weeks ago, I was on Facebook, and I was looking at the news feed on Facebook. I don't even, it might have been from one of y'all. I don't know. But I'm on Facebook and I look at the news feed. And there's this, this picture of, and it was, it was four uh, Middle Eastern men. And they had, they, they had all had their, their right hands cut off. Now, there's not a single person in here that would say that that is what? Is that wrong, church? That's wrong. We would all agree. Shake your head if you would agree. If you didn't hear me, shake your head. Good. We're all together. We would all say, that is wrong. We would say, why in the world did they do that? Well, they did that because these, these four Middle Eastern men had professed Christ. And they had denounced their, their religion. They had professed Christ and they had, they had denounced Islam. So what they did was, in the most despicable of things, in their culture, hospitality is huge. Not just hospitality, in, open it up into your home, but hospitality that they would intentionally, they shake with the right hand. And the reason why they shake with the right hand is because the other hand is used for personal hygiene. Get the picture? So you don't shake with this one. That would be disrespectful. They would shake with the right hand. Well, if I could take off your right hand, that means that you would never be welcomed and you would never be able to be hospitable with anybody else in their culture. So they would be, they would be outcast and they would be shamed. And every single one of us, there should be something boiling in all of us and say, that is wrong. I don't care if you're a Christian, you're not Christian. You look at that picture and you are offended. 
It's because we have this moral righteousness. We have this idea of morality within us. And we would look at images like that and we'd say they are wrong. That that is just unfathomable that something like that would happen that is so barbaric and medieval. How could that happen in the world today? Well, I have to tell you that the world we live in is, is different than the world across the pond, as we used to say in the Navy. It's, it's a lot different overseas than it is here. This is their reality. But we all have this level of, of moral righteousness. Here's, here's another instance of this. My, my daughter absolutely loves, like, animals. So has anyone ever seen the commercial about animal cruelty with Sarah McLaughlin and Angel is the song? It's dreadful. Here's, here's, how, this, here's how this goes through. It's dreadful to me. Now, now, Gracie, she can't even look at it anymore because she, like, tears up, and she sees an, this animal, the dog limping and all that, and she just starts, she just wigs out, and she turns her head and she has closed ears. She doesn't even like it. She can't handle it because in, in her, she has this love of animals. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the Lord. That yet we, were, we are to claim dominion over the animals, but it, not to disrespect them. We're supposed to take care of them. So she, it wells up in her that uh, I need to, to care for these animals. Now, it has an opposite effect with me. Whenever I hear that, I like, I'm enraged. I'm like, I want to like punch a koala. I mean, I, I get crazy. I'm like, I, I hear that, and I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. This song, again, I didn't like it when it came out, and I don't like it now. And it's just two different effects. Of course, I'm kidding. I love koalas and everything Australian. <laughs> of course. But... But there's this, this idea of, of moral righteousness. So you see, it's different in Gracie. And with Gracie, she loves animals. And that's part of her morality. That's what the Lord has put in her. But it's altogether different. Some of you really care for animals. Some of you don't. But you know what? The Lord needs all of us to care for the needs of the world. But you see, here's the interesting thing. This is Christian, non-Christian. This is just common, common, every person, moral righteousness. Some people are more passionate about certain things others are less passionate but we are needed all of us are needed we all have this here's a transition i have to i have to kind of pave the way to get where we're going the next thing that you see and this is on the screen this is a, a holy or an engrafted righteousness now this is romans 3 kind of shed light on this there is a different a whole different level here we all have this common or moral righteousness, but now the holy or engrafted righteousness or imputed righteousness, if you're somebody who studied theology, it's the same word. Engrafted means you didn't have it, but because of your relationship with Jesus, now you do have it. That's what it says in Romans 3, verse 22 through 24. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. This idea of engrafted or imputed righteousness comes from a relationship with Jesus. Now, we're not... We're, we're not uh, the Lord doesn't look at us and say, wow, you're a really moral person. Good job. You really care for the animals and you really love Greenpeace and you really, you're really you all about social justice. The Lord doesn't do that. Now the Lord looks upon us because we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ, those of us who have given our lives to Him. So now when, when we are looked upon by God the Father, now we have the imputed or the engrafted righteousness of Jesus. So now we don't have to 
worry about tipping the scales on, oh, here's the good things that I've done. Here's the bad things that I've done. I sure hope that there's more good than bad. We don't have to worry about that because the filter of which God looks at, upon us is from the righteousness that's been given to us through Jesus Christ. That should make somebody happy this morning. And it says the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. All who believe, not just in this country, in every country. So the message of Jesus Christ has to permeate beyond us and beyond our country and beyond our culture and beyond everything else into generation upon generation upon generation because we all as humans have moral righteousness and we are fooled into thinking that moral righteousness is good enough to get us into heaven. It's a great deception. It's a great deception, if I'm honest, church, it's a great deception right here in the South. Because we think, wow, we're, we're good people, we're wholesome people, we're all about the family, we're all about Jesus, we're all about the flag, we're all about my family's church, and yet we're not all about walking with Christ. And we have this, this idea that, that we can walk with Christians or we can call ourselves Christians, but if we have not given our lives to Jesus, we do not have holy righteousness. We have common moral righteousness, which the Word says is bankrupt before God. If all you have is your common moral righteousness, you have no righteousness at all. In God's eyes. But the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. That's the engrafted or imputed, the the gift of righteousness. But then, taking it one step further, there's this idea of practical righteousness. Now, practical righteousness is just a little bit different because it's not just common or moral righteousness. Now, because if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, because you have the engrafted righteousness or the holy righteousness, now we're compelled to have a practical righteousness which should be on the screen. It's the idea of a practical righteousness. This is, this is my life as a Christian now. I don't, I, I don't have to live my life trying to earn God's favor. It's because I have God's favor, now I can make the world right to the best of my ability. And how do we do that? We do that by maintaining these two things, justice and righteousness. We're all people of influence. Now, practical righteousness, in this sense that I'm trying to portray, is only for those who walk with Christ. We do so not to earn salvation. We do it because we know what we were saved from. And because of that, I want my life to, to grow and to, to flourish in Christ. And I want to be somebody who, who doesn't just talk about Christian things, but I want to live it. I want it to be practiced out in my life. That's what we're going to see in 2 Samuel. Starting in chapter 9. There are 13 verses, so we're going to kind of break it down a little bit. And take it point by point. Starting in verse 1. David asked, Is there anyone still left in the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziffa. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziffa? 
your servant, he replied. The king asked, is there still no, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? This is basically jumping into a context that I want to let you know about. This is mentioning uh, this great relationship between David and Jonathan. Jonathan was the first king of Israel. Jonathan was Saul's son. So they had this great friendship and they had really uh, made this pact. Really, it was almost like a blood covenant, almost like that you would think of like children, we do this, like you have a scab and you like peel the scab off and, and your friend like peels their scab off and you make a, like a blood covenant kind of thing. Girls, if you've done that, that'd probably be weird. But guys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've done that before, probably. And David is is looking around because he had made this this basically this this covenant, this pact with Jonathan that he would care for not just Jonathan but also all of Jonathan's descendants. And that's from First Samuel 20, verse 17. And he, he says, "Is there anyone else left?" From, from the house of Jonathan. Is there anyone else? Because David knew that he had to have this idea of practical righteousness and to main just, maintain justice, that Saul's grandson or Jonathan's son wouldn't just be cast aside. He says, and he's, he has a watchful eye, and he says, I'm looking around, and I just want to make sure because I don't want to fail here. I don't want to fail. I want to look around because I made this, this pact. I made this, this blood covenant with, with my brother, with Jonathan. And though Jonathan is dead, I want to make sure that I am still true to my word. There's a word also in this. It says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? This idea of and it's mentioned again, God's kindness. This is a certain covenantal type of love. It means like a, a loyal love. This is a very important theological idea. It's like a loyal love, meaning that it's God's people, God's covenant people. If you're of, of the redeemed of Jesus Christ, this is, this is who you are in Christ, that we're supposed to have this loyal love, like the Lord Jesus loves us enough that there's nothing that we could have done. There's no... There's, no problem that, or sin that we can commit in the future of which we're going to lose our salvation. And he saved you past, present, future sins. He knew who you were going to be. He knew all of your downfalls. And he went through and he says, I'm loyal to you. I didn't save you because you're, you have this level of morality. I saved you because I've given you this idea of holy or engrafted righteousness that only comes through a walk with Jesus Christ. And David he says, I have this, this idea of God's kindness, this loyal love. I don't want to lose this. I don't want to turn my back on my brother here. I, I love him. He says, I've made a pact with him. I've made this covenant with him. And he didn't want to mess it up. And he talks to this, this fella, and, and he's asking the question. And he says, is there... Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? See, he has this, this idea of the, of the watchful eye. He chose to look around. No one else would even matter. I mean, no one else even knew. So unless, unless David didn't have this idea of a loyal love to say, okay, 
I am one with God, so now I need to be one with other people. And I've made this commitment to Jonathan, and not just to him, but also to all his descendants. See, no one else knew about that, that pact that was made. And yet David knew in his gut and in his soul, he says, I have to do something here because there is some injustice being done. I need to make sure that, that this injustice is made right before God. And he does it with this idea of a watchful eye. Interesting thing, I'm going to read 1 Samuel 20, verse 17. It says, And Jonathan, this is stepping back, And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as himself. He loved him as himself. Interesting play on words because Jesus uses the exact words in Matthew 22, verse 39. That we need to love our Lord God with all our heart, mind, body, soul, right? We got that. And then we need to love our neighbor as what? Ourself. So the same, same choice in words that Jesus uses, he says, yes, look at this great picture. And now David and Jonathan had made this commitment and they loved each other as they loved himself. It was just like his own soul. Like they were soul brothers in, in, some, in some sense. And now Jesus, he carries that out to us. And he says, if, if you are to be people who, who follow after my heart, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Just as Jesus is, has this loyal love, this, has said this loyal love to us, now we need to have a loyal love to other people. We need to love our neighbor as ourself. Devastating things happen. When the church fails at this, if, if we're honest, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to say some things, I'm not going to intentionally try and fi- in, to offend you, but, but I'm just going to lay it out there. Over the last 50, 75 years, the church, I believe, has absolutely failed in this. And we've, we've lost our identity of justice and righteousness, and we've started to be more about who was here, and it's about us, and about, about like the silo mentality and building this church, and we're going to, well, we don't want to talk to that church because they're going to take our members, and we don't want to talk to that church because they're going to take our members. And as soon as those things happen and Satan kind of permeated those, we've lost our identity of justice and righteousness. Here's how I know it. Here's how I know it. Because the very thing that separates us in our country politically right now is this idea of Justice and righteousness. Democrats go through, and their answer for, for social justice is the Democrats. And I, if you are one, if you're not one, I don't care. I'm not, this is, I'm, I'm not trying to set up a political speech here, but I'm just, you know this, and I'm just trying to affirm what you know and make sense of it. Democrats, their answer is, if the government can just give a little bit more money to create some programs to help provide for these people who aren't working, then those people will be cared for. They think it's the government's responsibility. But yet, there's the other side, and the, the Republicans say, well, that's not the government's responsibility. We need to make, make a way so now that the government will actually help the, the local businesses and the small business owners to create jobs so now we will live, eliminate injustice and poverty and those types of things. Do you, think that, do you think that's consistent this morning? Yes? Yes? Do you think it is? Here's the problem. Now we have the government doing what churches should have been doing all along. This is a problem that now we're, that, that our country is relying upon somebody who sits in Washington, D.C. or a bunch of people who sit in Washington, D.C. when we've got churches meeting right now all over this country that should have been doing this for decades. 
And I think that God wants to stir up in us as a, us as a church and also the church, capital C, all around this country and the world to fight social injustices and to bring righteousness to the forefront. Not that we would rely on a politician to do what Christ followers are supposed to do. This idea of hesed or loyal love. As God has been so loyal to love us even though we were despicable and we were just dreadful and we just dripped of sin and the Lord Jesus says, I know who you were but I'm trying to save you from that and I'm loyal to you. Now I'm asking you and Jesus is asking us to be loyal and love our neighbors as ourselves, as a church. That's practical righteousness. Practical righteousness fights injustice. But we have to have a watchful eye. Next thing on, on that idea is we have a Christ-centered obligation. Micah 6.8 says this, talking about this word has said, or loyal love. Micah 6.8 says this as well. He has, show, he has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Three things. To act what? What's the next word? It's on the screen. Justly. And to love what? Mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. This is a call to the church. That we need to act justly. Not that we need to just worry about who goes in, in, you know, and goes, sits in the White House or who goes and we put in the House of Representatives or the Senate. This is to the church, not to a politician, that this is for us to act justly. We cannot put into a, a, a elected officials' hands what we're not willing to do ourselves. Don't do it. We need to act justly. Christians, act justly. If you're a teacher... You need to maintain justice, although I can just imagine how hard it is, in your classroom. You need to maintain justice, God-centered justice. That is your Christ-centered obligation. If you're a boss and you're in the workplace, you need to maintain justice and bring that that idea of Christ-like righteousness, the holy righteousness, practical righteousness, into your workplace. That's your responsibility as a Christian. You need to make sure that you elect people who have your, who, who have our, our values and our, not just our morality, but our biblical values in mind. See, this is, when we, we're talking about kings and queens, we are people of influence. You may sit here and think, you know what, I'm just a student. What, what can I possibly do? Every large movement that has happened over the last 100, 150 years has happened with the new generation. We need to pour into the generations coming up, church. We need to pour into those generations looking forward to say, okay, I I may not like things as they are. Maybe I don't agree on everything, but I know that if I want the church, the movement of Jesus Christ to keep going forward, I need to pour into the generations to come because the movement isn't supposed to be about us. It isn't supposed to be about buildings, and it's not about this, this institution. It's about the movement of people who are so radically have lived changed lives because of the, res- the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. And yet we have this Christ-centered obligation to bring righteousness and justice to our world. This is our responsibility as Christians, to act justly, as the Word says in Micah 6, 8, to love mercy. That's the hesed, that's the loyal, uh, the loyal love to be just loyal in our love of other people and to walk humbly. 
And literally, that means like to walk in humble action. That just doesn't mean to just sit back and say, wow, the world's really messed up. I can't even believe how the world is and watch Fox News or CNN or MSNBC or whatever you watch and, oh, the world is just a terrible place. No, what this is, this is something for us as Christians to step up and say, I need to bring justice into my world. I need to bring justice into my workplace. I need to bring justice into my school system. I need to bring justice in with the people who work around me. I need to love mercy. I don't need to rely on, on a government official. I don't need to rely on somebody else to do what Christ has already told me I'm supposed to do. Because we are loyally bound with the love that Jesus has given to us, and we have a Christ-centered obligation to do something with it. And yet, we look at the world that we live in, and I bet every single one of us would be able to give probably a list of three to five things that we think are absolutely wrong with the world we live in. And you would say that there are just glaring needs in the world today. But I'm going to kind of give you an example from something that happened nearly 50 years ago. And this thing that happened nearly 50 years ago was a glaring need in their day, but I can tell you what did not happen. The church did not step up in this setting. And I'm going to give you a quote. Many of you are going to be familiar with it. Martin Luther King Jr. from the Birmingham Jail, April 16, 1963. This is in response to some fellow clergymen who said, Oh, okay, uh, Martin Luther, please just slow down a little bit. Don't you think you're moving a little bit too fast? Don't you think you're pushing a little too hard? Don't you think these things, don't you think you just need to settle down? Everything will take care of itself. And this is just an excerpt of, of this letter that was written. And it, I, I had heard that it was actually written because he didn't have any, like, a real good piece of paper. It was written in a newspaper on the side. Just all of this was written on the side of this one piece of paper that he had. And this is just an excerpt. He says, my fellow clergymen, we know that through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait, and it rings in my ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. You must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our constitutional and God-given rights. The nations of, of Asia and Africa are moving like, with jet-like speed toward gaining political independence. But we still creep at horse and buggy pace toward gaining a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, but when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smoldering, or smothering rather, in an airtight cage of poverty, 
in the midst of an affluent society when you've suddenly found your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to, ex- or as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and you see tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority begin- beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by becoming an unconscious by an unconscious bitterness toward white people when you have to concoct an answer to a five-year-old son who's asking, Daddy, why do, why do white people hate colored people and why are they so mean? Every single person sitting in this room should have something well up, and up, well up in them and say, that was wrong. And the church did not stand up. Not the church as we know it. And the church, all through the ages, is supposed to be the, the spokesperson for the oppressed and the broken and, and the downtrodden. The church has always supposed to have been the spokesperson for them. And the church was quiet. And it was put into the government's hand to fix it. And that very man died for what he believed in. And I would say the only, the only people in, in, that set, in that setting, and I know that there were some heroes of that movement that, that all across um, ethnicities, but I would say that it took somebody with, with bravery and guts to stand up, who was a Christian man, to say, you know what, that is wrong. That's the same thing that we see in 2 Samuel chapter 9. At the end of verse 3, Ziphah answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan, and he is crippled in both feet. He said, wait a minute, there, there are, there's, there's one person. He's crippled in both feet. And David has this idea, he says, I have this loyal love for my brother and, and for my Lord that now I need to, to go out and there's a glaring need. This man who's crippled in both feet, who's just cast away from society, who has nothing in it of himself, and he has just been pushed away by everybody else. He couldn't care for himself. And David said, there is a glaring need, and I'm just the man to try and fix it. Look what David says in verse 4, reading verse 4 through 13. Where is he? The king asked. Ziphi answered, He is at the house of Mekur, son of Amiel, in Lodavar. So King David had him brought to Lodavar from the house of Mekur, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied, don't be afraid. David said to him, For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Verse 9, Then the king summoned Ziphah, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. 
and Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11. When Ziphah said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of David's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And all the members of Ziphah's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table and he was crippled in both feet. David did not have to do this. He could have turned his back on him, but he said, something is wrong. There is an injustice being done here. Mephibosheth is crippled in both feet. He can't care for himself. I've made this, this, I have this commitment to my Lord, and now I've made this commitment to my brother in Jonathan. And he says, something is wrong, and it is in my power to fix it. So he does. And I would say that the way that he fixes it is pretty radical. It's pretty radical. Not only does he say, you're going to eat at my table, but he also orders that the, 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 the other people who had been serving uh, his family, he says, you're still going to serve them, and now I'm going to give you all the land that your grandfather had, because not only do I want you to be taken care of, I want all the generations after you taken care of. So I'm giving you all this land back, and I'm, this is a radical way of meeting a need. You may think to yourself, well, that's really not that big of a deal. You know what? It's a lot easier to turn your back on those in need. Because if we're, if, if we're really honest, we do it all the time. David says, something is wrong. And he says, I don't want to just, I don't just want to just give Mephibosheth just an opportunity to survive. I, I, want, I want anyone who's passed on down the line, I want them to survive as well. And then he treats him like a son. And he says, you're going to have all the crops and all that, so you're going to have some money. That's basically what that is. And he says, and every time we have a meal, I want you to sit at my table. And I'm going to treat you like my son and welcome you into to my home. See, it's something quite quite astounding really to think in our our day and age that we even have to talk about this because if you have been uh, rescued from Jesus that you should you should automatically feel compelled and this message isn't to trying to guilt you into doing anything I just want to point out something that really is glossed over many times this is what the prophet Isaiah said about Jesus he says he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes listen to that This is about Jesus. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he he hears with his ears. So Jesus doesn't just look at everybody and just as to what he sees and what he hears. He says, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. So in our context, I'm not trying to put words in Jesus' mouth because that would be wrong, but in our context, Jesus isn't saying, um, oh, you know what, they probably put themselves in that situation. 
You could probably work. I re- I'm not going to give them any money. I'm not going to help them. I'm going to turn my back on them because they could probably be working if they wanted to. Well, they put themselves in that situation, so that's not my problem to fix. See, that's not what Jesus would say. He would say, you know what? You're broken. You may have brought some of it on yourself. It may have been from other people. But a walk with Jesus calls us to this idea of a practical righteousness so that we would try and make our world better. And that it wouldn't just be a level of morality, that it wouldn't just be, well, I'm trying to be a good person, I'm trying to earn God's favor, I'm trying to earn God's grace and God's merit. It isn't about that. It's because we have this this holy or engrafted righteousness because we walk with Jesus Christ. And because of that, there should be something that wells up in each and every one of us that says there are things that are blatantly wrong in the world that we live in. And as a Christian, I have to stand and fight for those and fight for justice and fight for righteousness because no one else is. And never underestimate the ability of even a small fellowship like ours. For a church that says, you know what, we, we can't, we are not going to fix all of the world's problems, but we can try and we can create an atmosphere where people come in here and not just that they would just come into this place and they would be well fed and they would be, you know, they would be just, just so happy and in the fellowship, but that we would come in this place, that we would get equipped as a church so that we would go out into the world that we live in and that we would be able to have the, the ability and the tenacity to fight social injustices because we are the redeemed of God and we know we should know as Christians well, there's a lot more at stake for us to sit silently isn't there and yet a movement of people even within someone just an individual who says I need to bring this truth into my workplace never underestimate the ability for the impact that you have in that place. If you're in a position where you get to hire people and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to hire people with the idea of not just how, how the, they can be beneficial to the company, but how can the company benefit them? How can I personally benefit them? How can, we further, how can I further the gospel with them? It calls us to have a reshaping of everything that we say and do. Us as a church, we, we meet needs. And you, you know, if you've been in the church for a while, you would say, okay, here's, here are the things that we do. We do the soup kitchen. Remarkable. We had 17 people. Praise God for this. 17 people show up. This is counting the children, which they helped somewhat. But 17 people showed up for the soup kitchen yesterday. That's a huge percentage of our church to showed up, that, that just showed up to serve people. And that's amazing. But we have the soup kitchen. But that's what? That's once every three months? It's really not that much. But then if you've been here a while, you know that we, we contribute to the ABC Women's Clinic. And they're, they're on the, the, the front lines of ministry and trying to rescue babies and mothers from, from all the guilt and shame that comes with, uh, with the decisions that they are being forced to make. And yet, as a church, we help provide for them financially. And yet, it's easy for us to give financially. We have about 12% of our budget that goes toward, toward missions, and not, not just foreign missions, but local missions. But that's not much influence. That is much, not as much influence as what you can have if you go to volunteer in a place like that. 
If you sit back and say, you know what, I don't have a whole lot of time to give, but if I have an hour to give here or an hour to give there, I can do something more than just putting a little bit of money in the brown box. Giving financially is a big deal. If, I, if I'm blatantly honest, we're, we're, our budget is blown for this year. Offerings are down. We have some very tough decisions that we have to make going into next year. And one of them is very much looking at, at really the landscape of all of our spending to say, okay, can we afford out of our budget as to what's currently being received, can we afford to contribute to missionaries like we have been in the past? We have to look at all options. And, but it's bigger than finances. Because I believe if you, if you contribute to the church, understanding that, that we have, that we have this, this, this loyal love, that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves, just as, as Dave and Jonathan loved, that we'd say, you know what? Every dollar that I give to the church, a percentage of that goes to, to, to local and foreign missions, which are vital. But yet, our obligation is more than that. That's, it's easy for you to put an extra $10 in the box and think that my problem, or that, that that problem is not my problem. I want us as a church to step up to say, you know what? That is my problem. It's not just a financial problem. It's a heart problem. The things that, that we talk about and that I see on Facebook, even from many of you, is things all about politics and all that. When's the last time that you fought for social injustice as a Christian? Instead of saying, you know what, ooh, it's, 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 the, it's the left's fault or it's the right's fault or it's the people in between. If they would just decide which way they want to go, that isn't the problem. It's, it's Christians. It's churches. We're so busy talking about things that really don't eternally make a difference. And Christ has called us to this idea of practical righteousness that we would see the needs of the world and that we would see the needs of, of Dublin and Lawrence County and our state to say, you know what? That's not somebody else's problem. That's my problem. And embrace it. 